Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. This program with Melinda Morton, a Lutheran minister who resigned from active duty as a chaplain at the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado, effective July 31, 2005, continues our series on evangelical proselytization within the Air Force and at the United States Air Force Academy. When I visited with Reverend Morton by phone on August 19, 2005, she began by describing her duties as a pastoral chaplain to the cadets at the Air Force Academy and the issues that led up to her resignation. I served as what we call a group chaplain. My offices were located in the dormitories with the cadets, and I served as their pastor or their chaplain in their dormitory situation and in all aspects of their life there. I provided chaplain services to the cadets as they needed them and as they articulated them to me. And I also perform rites and ceremonies in accordance with our faith in the chapel. I served a wide variety of Protestant services as I was needed, and then I was head of the liturgical service there at the chapel. The issue of enforced religious practices at the Air Force Academy became more notorious after you contacted people from Yale University and asked them to investigate the sexual abuse scandal that was also going on at the Academy. Yes. The way that happened was I actually had contacted Dr. Kristen Leslie, who is a professor of pastoral care at Yale Divinity School and an expert in caring for providing pastoral care to survivors of sexual assault, particularly sexual assault and rape associated with what we would call acquaintance rape. And I had contacted her because I had read her book and uh, felt that of all the literature that I had read on the subject, that hers was most relevant to the types of things I was seeing at the academy. I asked if she would come out and provide some training to the other chaplains, the 16 chaplains that are at the academy, in order to better provide care for survivors of sexual assault. And she agreed to do that and came out then three separate times. Uh, One of the things that really impressed me with Dr. Leslie was when I spoke with her, I said to her, now this is a very different environment here. It's different than community-based care or or any other kind of environment you've worked in. And, And would she be willing to just come out and spend a couple days learning about the environment? And she said she would and did so and then returned to give us training. We were very impressed with her training. And as she and I kind of developed a collegial relationship, a professional relationship along the way. She invited me back to speak with some of her students at Yale. And as a part of that, I then invited her out the following summer, which was the summer of 04, to bring some of her graduate students to a practicum that we devised during what is called our basic cadet training summer there. This is when the new cadets come in and are trained by the more advanced cadets in the basics of military structure and a military deportment. You said that you saw some problems with regard to uh, date rape. What did you see? The academy was in the middle of what I think the academy would describe as a sexual assault crisis or many reports of sexual assault had come forward and had been reported in the media and the academy's poor response to that had also 
been reported in the media. And because of that, we had victims or survivors coming forward seeking care. And the Academy was struggling to find out how they could best address that problem and attend to the needs of survivors and respond to those issues, issues which I might remind you are very common on all campuses, but take on a special dimension um, in a regimented environment like a military academy, also in an environment where uh, women are less than 20% of the student body and are mandated to be less than 20% of the student body. So when they came and investigated the sexual assault issues, they found that there were religious issues that were of equal import. As we began doing daily outbriefings with the Yale team, what kept coming up again and again, particularly the students' comments on what they viewed as an overtly evangelical atmosphere, And they were very surprised by this because they understood that chaplains were there to serve everyone and that you shouldn't necessarily see overwhelming articulations of evangelical ideology being expressed in a pluralistic environment. In other words, when chaplains were in groups where they were serving cadets of all kinds of faith backgrounds and no faith background, that to kind of give these first-order articulations, evangelical articulations, seemed to them to be, let's say, questionable. And so these questions kept coming up again and again. They would see, for example, in the worship services, they heard a chaplain saying to the, the basic cadets, and you have to realize these are, these are young people who have only left home a few weeks before. This is their first military experience, and they are going to leave this worship service and go back to living in large tents, Uh, literally no more than a foot or two from the person next to them. And in these worship settings, this chaplain was exhorting the people gathered there, and there were hundreds of cadets gathered there, to engage in evangelizing their bunkmates when they got back to the tents and warning them that if they really cared about the people who they were living with, that they would care about their eternal salvation and that these people would be damned to hell if they were not born-again Christians. Tell us what it means to evangelize the bunkmates. I think that the, the chaplain was exhorting the cadets who had gathered that they needed to share with their bunkmates what he viewed as the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ with people, whether they ask for that to be shared with them or not. Um, Obviously, his theme there was a theme that is, I think, very common in in evangelical circles and very common in evangelical worship. So it was not out of touch with evangelical worship, but this worship that he was doing this in was the general Protestant service. If someone says that you will burn in hell if you don't accept the evangelical uh, consciousness, what kind of consciousness or awareness do they think that a person would have after death to realize that that's where they are, burning in hell? Well, I think that if you kind of buy into the paradigm of evangelicals, which is a very literalistic, almost anachronistic look at at scriptural descriptions, then that would be a really bizarre question to them, because they really see the afterlife as not that much different than this life, except that they are the consistent winners in that life. So they will see and feel and do and be much as they are now, except that they will be eternally blessed by God. 
Um, it's very similar to fundamentalist Muslims who feel that they will be rewarded in heaven with sex with virgins. Okay, that might be an odd concept for you and me, but if you have an understanding of eternal existence in some kind of very embodied physical form, I suppose that uh, would would have some meaning. So they actually see a, a corporeal existence. I would say for many of them they do, or they haven't really thought through how odd their articulations are if they don't have a corporeal existence. I think what is most frightening about that is the idea that one can, I mean, let, let's face it, who really cares what someone says about my afterlife? I, I think that what is so damaging about those kinds of statements is what they say about life right here. In other words, you are only worth something as I can instrumentalize you in my religious conception. So if you won't cooperate with that, then I will damn you to hell. And so I will dispense with you in the present, not only in the, in the future, but I dispense with your worth in the present here. And I think that's what is so hurtful and damaging and certainly cuts right across any form of teamwork that you might be trying to build in the military. In your experience prior to that time as a chaplain at the Air Force Academy, had you seen this issue before? Many times, yes. What happened that caused a shift in the recognition of it in your mind, leading you to eventually resign from the Air Force and for it to become a part of the national discussion that wasn't occurring before? Well, I think that what changed was a couple things, but one, a, a graduate of the Air Force Academy who, who had two sons at the Air Force Academy, uh, last summer his son came to him, this was the same summer that Yale was there, and the same summer that we produced the Yale report following uh, Yale's visit there. Prior to that summer, um, in, the, in the spring, around the time of the release of the movie, The Passion of the Christ, there had been some kind of overtly evangelical activities growing on campus. There had been distribution of flyers um, at the noontime meal formation at, at the tables. And I know that probably your listeners would say, well, what's the big deal? You know, at the college I go to, there are flyers everywhere and people write on sidewalks and who cares? And to that I would say, absolutely, that's true. But what you have to realize is that in a military setting, at a military academy, there aren't such things. Flyers that are posted have to be officially posted, and if you are required to be at a noon meal formation and you are required to be standing at that table and looking down at flyers, some eight or so to, to a table that depict a crucified Jesus Christ and exhort you to come see this movie, not because it's a great theatrical release or whatever, but because of its overtly Christian message, then you have basically state-sponsored uh, recommendation of a certain religious perspective and ideology, and one that you cannot excuse yourself from. If you are not inclined to be persuaded in that way, it's not like you can say, well, I, I prefer not to dine with you today. I'm going to go elsewhere. So that caused some of the first, I would say, ruffles in the water. That was kind of a major incident, and the commandant addressed cadets after that incident. 
that summer, the summer of '04, Mr. Weinstein was visiting his son, who was a sophomore there, and the son uh, told him that he had been referred to out on the athletic field by a derogatory word beginning with F, followed by Jew. And he told his dad this had happened to him repeatedly and that the next time it happened, he was going to resort to physical violence. So in response to that, his father immediately went to the commandant and the superintendent and asked for some um, hearing and explanation of why the climate had deteriorated in that regard. So Mr. Weinstein was also pressing the administration to take some stand and take some action against a climate which had become overtly hostile for people who were not evangelical Christians. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Reverend Melinda Morton, who formerly was a minister at the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and resigned from the Air Force effective July 31st of 2005. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Reverend Melinda Morton, what were the issues that led up to you resigning from the Air Force? I was the action officer for the Yale team visit in the summer of 2004, and at the end of that visit, we wrote a routine after-action report, very common in the military after any project. And in that after-action report, we detailed some of the things that we had seen during the Yale visit. Now, there was nothing in that report that hadn't already been briefed to all the chaplains at a meeting that we had had prior to Yale leaving. Everything that was in the report and Yale's concerns about uh, the overtly evangelical atmosphere had been addressed directly to the chaplains. However, our senior staff chaplain, a uh, chaplain, Colonel Whittington, had recused himself from that meeting. So he had not been at that meeting to hear that report. It was incumbent upon me to produce a written report, which we did uh, jointly, the, the Yale team and myself, and I presented it to Colonel Whittington on the 30th of July, uh, 2004. And I informed Colonel Whittington at that time that there were some things in there that he might want to look at, and I specified what those were, and that there were some things that we might want to discuss as a staff, and we might want to address as a staff having to do with religious diversity. This would have been the second time I briefed Chaplain Whittington on this, because in June when he arrived, I had also briefed him on what had happened in the spring and some of the issues surrounding religious diversity at the Air Force Academy. So he should have understood that this was something that should have been on our plate, as it were, to take action on as chaplains. Following my delivery of that report to him, on the 15th of August, he called together the chaplains and said that primarily due to actions of Mr. Weinstein, the superintendent was calling for what we call a tiger team in the military. That's kind of like a action committee. A tiger team be formed to address issues of religious diversity on campus and, frankly, of religious intolerance. And we were to form this committee, look at these issues, and propose some solutions, including developing an educative device that we could um, enlighten staff and, and cadets about these issues. So I presume that the issues were what you have mentioned before about the evangelical proselytization. It was the evangelicals versus the rest of the world. It wasn't the evangelicals versus the Jewish faith or the Roman Catholic faith. That's very much true. But we were never allowed to articulate it in that form. Why? 
because the evangelical community, which is quite powerful at the academy, particularly among the faculty and staff, as we began to work our Tiger team and we began to produce proposed educational modules, came to us and were very insistent that, for example, we never use the word intolerance in our module and that we never mention or highlight evangelicals as being even an area of concern. When you say they were insistent in that, did they have the authority to edit what you wrote? No, but they have the authority to influence the senior staff chaplain and other senior officials. And as a matter of fact, the Commandant of Cadets is a noted evangelical and and born-again Christian. And they certainly came to several presentations and dry runs and were, I would say, borderline uh, hostile. Is it fair to say that uh, you had a moral crisis that you resolved in favor of resigning from the Air Force? Ten months passed between the kind of initial things that we were talking about there with the initiation of the Tiger team and some of our first working on the educational module and the time I resigned. It became apparent to me that the two-star chief of chaplains, uh, General Charles Baldwin, his staff and certainly major portions of the staff at the Air Force Academy were wholly unenthusiastic about addressing or fixing this problem in a really constructive fashion. Because of their religious faith? Apparently so. General Baldwin is himself a born-again Christian, and when he looked at our educational module, for example, we had produced a module that had used a lot of audiovisual clips in it, because that's appealing to the young people at the Air Force Academy. It's an appealing way to, to get across a message. And we had constructed our module to talk about religious diversity and what it is like to live in a religiously diverse environment and what skills one might need to do that. And in order to do that, we had used clips from, for example, Schindler's List. We had used clips from The Last Samurai, which talked about Buddhist spirituality. We had used a clip from a movie called Smoke Signals, which addressed, uh, in some regard, Native American spirituality, and many other clips. When General Baldwin looked at that, We ended our presentation, and he looked at me and my presenter and said, why is it in your presentation that the Christians never win? I was frankly flabbergasted by this question, because it indicated to me that he wholly missed the point of the presentation, but far worse, that he somehow viewed the world as some cosmic battle between evangelical Christians and everyone else. And that was quite disheartening to me. As a result of his critiques, all of those clips were pulled from the module and his recommendation that we use a clip from the Mel Gibson film, We Were Soldiers, went into the module fore and aft. That's the kind of influence that I'm I'm talking about. And so those kinds of things happened. In addition, our module went through something like 17 revisions from August 15th to November 2nd, and then several more revisions before it was finally rolled out in the very last days of March. Once the module was rolled out, it became apparent to me, and I was the senior staff chaplain's executive officer, so I had some very regular contact with the senior staff chaplain and understood what was going on administratively in the office, and it became apparent to me that the senior staff chaplain would stand no criticism of 
what we were doing. He asked me once what I thought of the module, which was called RSVP, or Respecting the Spiritual Values of All People. And I said to him, well, well frankly, sir, I'm, you know, I don't think it's very good. Now, I say that, you have to understand that I did the majority of the work on this, so I wasn't criticizing anyone else. I was basically criticizing myself, criticizing the module we had produced, and said, you know, I don't think it's it's very good, and I don't think the cadets are getting that much out of it, but I understand this is our first go at this, and, you know, we'll press on. We were in the process of training 8,000 people on base with this module, which we did between the end of March and the end of May. It was in that time, however, that the Yale report, which I mentioned earlier on and which I had delivered to the senior staff chaplain, um, that Yale report uh, came out in the press. This was a big embarrassment to the senior staff chaplain because he had never up-channeled it to the superintendent, as he should have done. He then called me in and in a very uncomfortable meeting with another chaplain present, basically asked me to be disingenuous about the content of that report. What did he ask you to do? He very much wanted to say that the reason he hadn't up-channeled the report was because he didn't feel that the report was valid, that the things that the report said had gone on uh, at the Jack Valley encampment hadn't gone on and that that's really what he wanted to say to the superintendent, and that's what he intended to say to the press. Well, my name was on that report. If that was a disingenuous report, then I was guilty of falsifying documentation. And the fact of the matter is the report wasn't disingenuous. And the fact of the matter is we had already briefed that report to the very chaplains mentioned in the report, and they hadn't denied that they had done and said those things. So why were we now going to respond to the press by saying that those things never happened? As a matter of fact, that is exactly how the Air Force Academy at first responded to the press. Saying that these things never happened? Yes, saying that they could not verify that those things had happened at Jack's Valley. When that didn't work for them, they came back and said, well, even if they had happened, that was perfectly acceptable within their definition of the chaplaincy. And that's basically the story that they stuck with. But as things were rolling along, and I could see that the academy and the senior staff chaplain were willing to engage in propagating disingenuous statements, I became more and more disheartened about our ability to positively address this problem. It was then, as time went on, that I decided that there really was no longer a place for me in the chaplaincy. What motivated you to join the Air Force years before? Well, I actually spent 10 years as a line officer prior to becoming a a chaplain, and I served as a Minuteman II missile launch officer, commander, and flight commander, and then went over to Space Command and worked launch and early orbit. I was an orbital analyst on the launch of several space assets. And at some point in your career, you attended law school. I did. Taking your training and your experience, your experience in the Air Force, your training as an attorney, and your training as a theologian, how do you see this issue being resolved, the issue of the evangelical proselytization in the United States military forces? I think that it needs to be resolved in accordance with the Constitution. Many people have asked me, did I think that I was more attuned to this issue because 
I was an attorney, and my answer has always been, no, I think I was attuned to this issue because I went to fourth grade. In other words, I don't think that this is a terribly difficult issue. Well, my question is, how do you see it being resolved on a practical level? Sure. Has the paradigm shifted and we're calling a halt to it now, or is the paradigm yet to shift? Oh, I think the paradigm has yet to shift, and it's yet to shift because there are folks in the fringes of the religious right and a conservative uh, Christian evangelicals who have a theory of what they call dominion religion or dominion theology in which they believe in some future time that God is going to take certain actions on the face of the earth, and they believe that the military is essential for these actions to take place, and that the evangelization of the military is a part of that plan. Now, I have no problems, certainly as a citizen, with them espousing that theology and espousing it at the top of their voice from their churches and from the public street corner if they wish to. What I have a problem with is the military not recognizing that environment and understanding that the military needs to be vigilant in its strict separation of government power and religious ideology. Do you believe that will be recognized by the military, including the commander-in-chief? I think that that would be quite a challenge for the commander-in-chief to recognize that, and I do not see that he has that he has inclinations in that way. So what do you see happening? Where do you see this issue taking place of ideas, freedom of religion, non-establishment clause in the United States Constitution, First Amendment? Well, first of all, I really don't want to get sucked into a kind of an evangelical framing of the question to see this as some great cosmic battle. What this is, is a realization that we have a constitution, and that constitution is very clear about not using uh, governmental position and power to promulgate religious ideology. And the government has to be uh, attentive to making sure that that happens, and citizens have to be attentive to insisting that the government do that, because if we don't do that, we damage, for example, unit cohesiveness and morale in the military. We damage our image as we take our military to foreign soil, particularly in the kinds of climates that our military is involved in now. Uh, Nothing could be more important in terms of climate and culture in the military, considering where we, we deploy to at this time. And I think that Congress has to step up as Congressman Steve Israel has asked them to, and do their job of overseeing the military, and particularly overseeing the academy in this regard. Reverend Melinda Morton, I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Yes. The book I am currently reading is a book called No Future by Lee Edelman, called No Future Queer Theory and the Death Drive and I found it to be extremely interesting. Reverend Melinda Morton, thanks very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you. Melinda Morton is a Lutheran minister who resigned from the United States Air Force effective at the end of July 2005 because of her disagreements with the Air Force Academy's evangelical proselytization. If you're interested in this topic, please visit our website, www.radiocurious.org 
and listen to our August 3, 2005 interview with Mikey Weinstein, an Air Force Academy graduate and a former attorney in the Reagan White House. The book Reverend Melinda Morton recommends is No Future, Queer Theory and the Death Drive by Lee Edelman. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.